0: On behalf, I'll we'll start. On behalf of the Cornet Prop Tech Committee, DEI Task Force, and IFMA GWI, welcome to today's program. I'm Meredith Lovejoy, Director of Business Development with Lair Cumming New York. I'm a member of the Cornet PropTech Committee, and I'm the chair of the IFMA GWI New York Committee. By way of a brief introduction, the PropTech Committee is a knowledge sharing group providing a forum for both end user and service provider members to discuss the latest PropTech trends and to promote new companies. The IFMA New York Global Workforce Initiative, GWI, is an initiative of the EFMA Foundation that seeks to address the triple bottom line of economy, equity, and environment. We're excited to be here today and I'm going to pass this over to Cassandra Charles. She'll tell you about the DEI task force, thanks.
1: Thanks Meredith. Uh, good afternoon everyone. My name is Cassandra Charles, Associate Director with Bluestone Management, an international project management firm. I also serve as the Chair of the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee for the Cornette New York City Chapter. Thank you very much for attending today's program. Today's discussion is only a snippet of what is the start of Cornet's diversity, equity and inclusion efforts. As a newly formed committee, we're just getting our feet wet with the raising the level of awareness and education the organization and thus the New York City corporate real estate community. Forming the committee, making this commitment to DEI was part of the call for necessary change following last year's summer. Change resulting from the racial injustice crisis, injustices that have always been there, but following the killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, same with you, Black Lives Matter, anti-Asian hate, etc protests. Just yesterday, the Senate unanimously passed a bill commemorating the end of slavery in the United States and making Juneteenth a federal holiday. Progress. And as we are mid-Pride Month, honoring the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in New York City, we also celebrate that we've come a long way. However, we still have work to do. As the world engaged more and more in the discussions of racial injustice, people from all backgrounds, leaders, employers, employees, took the moment to consider their roles and opportunities to advance, or even for some to really take a look at what diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like within their organizations. DEI has many formats, being intentional about labels and language, supplier programs, bias training, and holding folks accountable for inaction. DEI remains a difficult and polarizing conversation for many leaders, but the misstep would be to not have them, right? Which brings us to our conversation today. Now I'll hand the virtual mic over to Jose to kick us off.
2: Jose? Thank you, Cassandra. I'm really excited to be here today um, to moderate this panel of distinguished professionals. Um, I really hope that we can have an honest conversation today um, about the diversity, equity and inclusion impacts within the PropTech space. Uh, Throughout the event, I'll post uh, several polls, questions. Please, please participate um, in the poll And at any time that you have a question or a comment, please engage in the chat. I'll try to incorporate some of those questions and comments um, throughout our conversation. Uh, Before I turn it over to my panelists, um, I'd like to give you a little bit about my background. I'm a Bronx native. I was born to a Dominican mother, uh, a Spanish father. Um, I started my journey um, 15 years ago, believe it or not. I may have a baby face, but I do have that much uh, track work um, in me. Um, I started my journey at PepsiCo out in their purchase headquarters up in Westchester, New York. Um, I was an events coordinator, then soon became a facilities coordinator, um, ultimately ended up being a facilities supervisor. Uh, During my time there, I obtained my master's in facilities management um, from Pratt Institute. And today, um, I've been at Facebook for five years, and I'm a facilities program manager supporting the America's region, uh, and it's been truly a life-changing ride for me since I've joined, uh, since I've joined Facebook. And so, in preparing for this event, you know, I asked myself, you know, why did I accept to moderate this event? And it's honestly because I'm statistically not supposed to be here. I never, um, you know, I never lose sight of that. Um, a Department of Labor uh, report um, stated that about eight, 18% of Hispanic men my age. Actually, have obtained bachelor's degree, bachelor's degrees, and my community as well, especially here in the Bronx, that has been COVID-stricken, um, has a high um, high rate, high poverty rate, um, and so it's important for me that you know all of you see me here, that those of my background see me and hear me. Um, And then, more importantly, that I use any kind of platform that I have uh, to promote diversity. Um, And with that, I'm super excited to turn it over to Craig, um, who's going to tell us a little bit about his story um, and how he got here.
3: Uh, Well, Jose, first and foremost, thank you for moderating. Thank you for being you. We see you, we hear you, and we appreciate and need more Jose sitting in your seat. Um, and like you, I, I am also statistically speaking, not supposed to be here, um, but because of who I am, I am here. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Just really quickly, my, my background is um, very similar to yours. I grew up in Atlanta and not the great part of Atlanta. I didn't grow up even knowing commercial real estate was a thing. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I started out in technology and consulting, uh, and but realized that I wanted to be involved in a built environment. I wanted to be involved in community and, and play a role. And I realized commercial real estate was a way to do that. So I then transitioned after my MBA, um, to commercial real estate and have really spent the past 20 plus years, um, in a number of different roles and capacities, uh, primarily in the real estate services space, servicing. Um, investors and owners of real estate like your um, organization. Uh, and in a, really over the past 10 years, I've had the good fortune to be a division CEO at four different companies. Uh, you know, Colliers International, we running their U.S. region, Cassidy Hurley running, which is now Cushman and Wakefield, running their corporate services division, uh, Newmark Not Frank uh, running corporate services. And then most recently uh, had the good fortune of running a division for WeWork, uh, I am not in the documentary on Hulu, uh, but I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, uh, and now I spend a lot of my time advising, coaching, serving on the board of prop tech companies uh, that are you know, doing interesting, exciting things like Roofstock, Philo, uh, State Book is on the call. I'll let Kalandra introduce herself. So I'm just really excited about where the industry is going and being a part of it. And I'm really uh, excited about the role of diversity, equity, inclusion, and more importantly, equity, racial equity, as we think about the next generation of uh, CRE.
2: I'm gonna look at that Hulu documentary again. You know, maybe maybe you there was a little cameo there, but I'll, I'll check that out again. Um, super impressive uh, background, Craig. Uh, Russell, you wanna introduce yourself?
4: Sure, uh, Russell Olson, ROI Consulting Group, and also uh, faculty over at Pratt Institute. So, I had the pleasure of uh, having Jose as a student a number of years ago. But uh, I've been teaching at Pratt for 25 plus years now and have watched the program change over those years and uh, actually go from uh, the older white guys, as they put it, to now uh, an incredibly diverse. Uh, student body. We have people from all over the world that are attending, um, not only from just different walks of life, but also I think the the male to female ratio has uh, shifted. And I think we're actually seeing more women moving into the classes at Pratt there. Uh, But also on the flip side, I run a consulting firm that focuses on technology for real estate and facilities managers. So uh, I guess that's my contribution from the tech side of things.
2: Thanks, Russell. Um, Lourdes, happy to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your journey.
0: Hello, I'm so happy to be here today. um, And thank you for inviting me. Um, So my name is Lourdes Troncoso and I have the pleasure of leading the facility operations, and employee services at Facebook. Jose is part of my team, Uh, and so we're part of two Dominicans on the statistically shouldn't be here. Uh, At the core of it, I'm the child of immigrants. Uh, My parents arrived here in the 60s looking mainly for an opportunity for their children, and um, I felt it was my obligation and my joy to show up for every opportunity provided since then. Um, I came to... I came to see that my role as a female leader is something really important. As you know, I work at an organization where we believe in women leaning in. And it is really an important aspect of how we how we show up um, in an equity and inclusion and diverse way. Uh, coming out of high school, my very first job was in a janitorial right outside of Rockefeller Center. So that started my life in facilities who knew that leaky toilets and cleaning was gonna be part of my daily life. And then I went from there and and moved to New Line Cinema. If you've ever seen uh, Austin Powers or uh, Freddy Krueger, Elm Street movies, yep, they made those. And there I had leaders that were female when I didn't realize the difference that the VP of IT for a film industry was a woman. And that was starting to lay down the foundation of seeing women in different capacities in different firms. From there, I moved over to Muse, where I led uh, large-scale procurement and had the opportunity to um, really have a, my first look at facilities. Uh, my CEO came over to me one day and said, hey, would you take on this two-person team? And I said, sure. And it was the facilities team. with a powerhouse, fiercely passionate, Amanda, who loved all things facilities and started me down this path. From there, I went to Oracle, went to Apple, and here I am at Facebook.
2: Thank you. And I have to shout out to any other Dominicans that are on this call, sorry. Um, Tamisha, tell us about your story.
5: Yes, hello. I'm Tamisha Bakobafo. I'm senior diversity recruiter for Newberger Berman. And I. it's a, so interesting. I've always had a passion and a, a passion for people. So the fact that I fell into human capital management is no surprise. Um, I've been a recruiter primarily. So I've, I've had a stint of um, CPG, which is um, a stint in, you know, the fun world of consumer packaged goods, um, most of my experience was financial services. So I came out of Spelman college. So HBCU, um, and was recruited into wall street, the typical um, process, Um, didn't really know much about wall street, definitely. And I started with an internal consulting analyst program where they let you rotate around the firm and try to figure out what you wanted to do. And ultimately, um, my final rotation was HR landed there and haven't left since. I, I got a taste of the HR water and, um, and it's been it's been a wrap. But ultimately, um, I started off on the business partner side. So um, I, I often say that I love being on the fun side of HR versus the the side that, you know, where people get the HR call and they're like, oh, no, you know, it's HR calling. I actually wanted to be the HR call that people wanted to receive, which is recruiting. So we're the good news call. And um, ultimately, um, I've recruited for all different types of um corporate functions and all across the spectrum. Um, but then I fell into diversity recruiting. We had a, a unique opportunity at JP Morgan um, prior to my my Neuberger experience where, um, you know, we, the team was called Advancing Black Leaders. So being that I am double diversity obviously, African American female, which is you talk about should statistically shouldn't be here and the rarity, I think that's a, a culmination and theme that's so true. Um, I'm always you have lots of imposter syndromes where you're the only one in your environment. And that has been my typical experience throughout Wall Street being the only one. Um, so it, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was to, to be a part of a cool opportunity to help change that narrative to help, Move the needle with respect to equity, inclusion, and diversity. And um, so, this team, we went to market saying we're advancing Black leaders. And so, we it was provocative, it was exciting, it was um, lots of different reactions from folks. Um, and we focused on the most senior, so changing the essentially changing the complexion at the top of the house, so that it's not just you know um, a homogeneous, um, but we're we're seeing an array of diversity. Um, and then after that, Newberger called and um, wanted to do the same thing. Um, for the entire organization. And so um, I I accepted Newberger's call and um, I'm super excited to focus in intentionally on um, women as well as underrepresented and making sure that um, we get a fair share and a seat at the table.
2: Awesome. And I'm gonna give a shout out to HBCUs as well. Uh, Anyone on the call for that. Um, Calandra, I'd love to hear your perspective and story.
6: Thank you, Jose. It's great to be here with this very diverse panel. So I think I I love the fact that we're walking the talk. Um, From my perspective, I also should not technically be here or at least I'm I'm a minority as a a female founder in PropTech. There are only 9% of uh, founders in in PropTech are female and we receive less than 2% of uh, venture capital. So uh, it's a it's been a definitely a journey. I span in my company State Book, which is a location intelligence data provider to the real estate industry and economic development. We, um, we have data around all kinds of different aspects of the industry and diversity is one, both around race, but also breaking out the data across um, occupations, industries, um, et cetera, by race, gender, age, income, all different types of uh, diversity spectrum. And um, as a female founder in this industry, when I first started State Book, we launched in 2014. And generally speaking, whether it was real estate or economic development um, or corporate site selection, which are all sort of our our initial target industries, it was me and a a room full of men. And um, that has slowly started to change over the years. So it's very encouraging to see And um, I'm really happy to be here and to share some data on the industry and uh, this important topic in general.
2: Um, I I love each and every one of your stories, by the way. Um, I think they were quite impactful, Um, but I'd like to stay with you, Calandra, because you have data at your fingertips. And so why don't you set the stage for us in terms of demographics within the prop tech industry?
6: Sure, happy to do that. Um, can you see my screen now? Yes. Excellent. So, in looking at diversity specifically in prop tech, um, it's a it's a tricky business because they're actually prop tech is not technically an industry according to the federal government yet. So we have to look at data around real estate, around facilities management. Um, and technology in trying to get to the nut of prop tech in general. Um, And I think it's important, as we've just discussed, to just start with the idea that diversity means different things to different people. And so I think you have to look at gender diversity, racial diversity, sexual preference, age, income. There are so many different aspects to diversity in general. And so I'm only going to touch on a few in this presentation as it relates to our industry, but um, I just wanted to acknowledge that out out the gate. So starting with um, education, I thought was a really good place to begin because it's no no, uh, secret that as, as it relates to opportunity, it starts with education. And when we're thinking about um, how, what types of people are in which positions and looking at the types of discussions just from the people on the panel and the stories that we shared, um, it's a a very important thing to look at education and and how many people are being exposed to opportunities across these different diversity categories. And so I pulled out data just looking specifically at bachelor's degrees in real estate development as a start um, out of the top 17 university programs in the US that actually have a program, right? in this category, there are 452 graduates, uh, 66% male, 34% female. And then if you look at the diversity, the racial diversity across those categories, it's overwhelmingly white. Other looks like a large number here, but it's made up of um, people from different countries and They're in the federal lexicon, it's known as aliens. So (laughs) it's a little bit hard. They're sort of lumped together, but just looking at um, the general breakout, it's overwhelmingly white, even in the female category. Um, And so again, this just points to people just not being exposed to the opportunity to go into some of these programs and industries and If we look at um, the next category, which is bachelor's degrees in facilities planning, even more overwhelmingly male and uh, overwhelmingly, well, actually here, it's a little bit more diverse, right? 50-50 white and black, um, but still overwhelmingly male. Um, And then if we look at, um, I think I skipped one. Hang on one sec. Oh, I see. So it was bachelor's degrees in real estate development and then bachelor's degrees in real estate. Um, And so again, a little bit more uh, equitable in terms of the number of of, um, men and women graduating, but definitely not across male and female. Um, So then if we look at the actual industries, hold on, my thing is skipping around a little bit. Um, we can look here at the different industries. So looking at the real estate industry, um, 50% of women employed in the, or almost 50% of women are employed in the industry, but that's really skewed by female uh, residential real estate brokers. And when you look at the different uh, ethnicities and races here, you'll see, again, it's overwhelmingly white across the real estate industry, the computer industry, financial investments. Um, So, and again, very few women in each of these different categories. Looking at uh, occupations, we have facilities managers. This was uh, part of one of our panel conversations pointed out that there is an incredible uh, need for additional facilities managers. And if you look at, both the number of people that were graduating in that category, it was tiny. There are almost no programs being offered at the university level, even at the bachelor's degree level for uh, facilities management. And then you have overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male. So again, just showing that the the industry is not preparing people with opportunities in these different categories. and finally, just to wrap it up, in terms of prop tech in general, 9% of prop tech founders are women. Female founders receive 157 times less funding than male founders. Um, founding teams with even one woman are less likely to get funding than all male teams. And women make up just 15% of the workforce in property and construction. So again, tying back to that uh, real lack of diversity in these industries. So thank you very much for the opportunity to present and to share this information and I'll turn it back to you, Jose.
2: Thank you. That was really um, eye-opening. and I don't know about everyone else, but I certainly was trying to figure out where I fit into <laughs> that. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think the general conclusion is that we're here today because there's a lot of work <laughs> that needs to get done. Um, in a lot of these numbers here. And so Craig, uh, continuing you know, on with PropTech, um, you're an experienced leader within the community. You know, you have an impressive resume. You know, what does PropTech mean to you? Um, you know, why, you know, why is, uh, and why is DEI important um, in this field for you? Um, and, and do you think it's becoming a driving force?
3: Well, you know, there's just so many ways to kind of come at that. Um, First and foremost, um, you know, this is an incredibly important, you know, kind of arena because it does represent kind of the future and the growth in the industry. Um, and, and it's important for people to realize that technology serving the real estate and commercial real estate space is not new. We've had technology for a long time, Excel and Argus and CoStar. Um, so I think of prop tech actually more broadly um, than just the technology itself. Yes, it's software is technology, but it's also innovation, um, innovative ways of thinking about um, business models and ways of servicing old problems. Um, and particularly in the context of what we're talking about today, it, it really is an opportunity to kind of bring a new and fresh way of thinking about talent. Um, who gets to participate in, in this ecosystem? Kalandro uh, is really smart to kind of like tap into, um, you know, mathematics, computer science, real estate facilities. But then also, too, there is investors and, 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 and kind of the whole VC landscape. So there's lots of ways to participate in this. Which then, when you talk about inclusion, including in what? Being included in what? Um, And so included in, you know, one, um, the the roles that are servicing this growth space, super important, obviously. Inclusion in the leadership that is navigating and shepherding um, this opportunity. Inclusion in the wealth creation that will... Inevitably happen. No one gets into these spaces because they 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 intend to go broke. They go there because they want to create wealth and create value. Um, So being a part of that value creation and also extracting some of that super important. Um, So when I think about why why this is important, it's important because there's so many different fronts, both from kind of the composition of prop tech, innovative business models, software technology, uh, but also to the the new seats and roles that people have to participate founders, operators, service providers, investors, um, board directors. So again, uh, there's potentially a much bigger you know, set of opportunities for us to now kind of go back and, and kind of push for inclusion. And then the last thing I'll just say is inclusion is a great starting point. Uh, because it's basically saying, Hey, guys, include us. We're not asking for more <laughs> than just inclusion, which is a really soft ask. I mean, to be honest, anyone can look at those numbers and say, Hey, you know, African Americans make up less than 12% of the US population, but make up less than 3% of the leadership roles in commercial real estate. That's not inclusion. Um, and so ultimately, where I'd really love to see us do is move to a place where we're talking about um, equity uh, and having equitable distribution of these opportunities um, and the value creation. And, and I think that's where we want to go. But, you know, let's start with what it means to, 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 to see inclusion.
2: Well, just to even continue on that topic, you mentioned, you know, equity there. Like, what are some of the ways, you know, focused on equity that DI could be a driving force there? I mean, so
3: listen, again, equity in lots of different ways. Um, There, like literally, I think last year, there was over, you know, 30, $40 billion that was invested into venture, you know, but, you know, venture dollars are invested into kind of prop tech, commercial real estate, um, resi real estate, technology software platforms. Um, Who's investing that money? Where, you know, Calandra said less than, you know, 3% of the capital go to women founders. Why is that? Um, This is the way wealth is created um, through, you know, through deploying capital. So it would be great to see more equitable distribution of that capital. Um, It'd be great to see more participation um, of, 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 you know, in the companies that are going to hire people who will participate and generate value from that. Um, so you know, from entry level roles to the C suite to board seats, love to see um, equity there. We'd love to see equity in terms of like capital. Love to see equity in lots of different ways. So again, as you know, Calandra said, there's lots of different ways to think about it. The good news for us today is that this is really the very beginning of a very exciting you know season in in the real estate you know industry. And so it's not too late. The, the cement isn't hard yet for us to really start kind of putting in some of this infrastructure. To ensure that we do see equity in lots of different capacities.
2: Awesome, thank you, um, Lourdes. As a Latina um, and a woman, I'm sure you've, and, and I think you've tapped a little bit of, you know, in your introduction there. But you've probably seen the prove- the progression of um, DNI within the industry. Based on your experience, you know, can you talk about some of those changes that you've seen throughout your time in the industry?
0: Sure, it'd be my pleasure. Um, You know, I think what Craig was talking about really resonated with me and I actually took a note. uh, So I think that these tie together. Um, My biggest challenge in my profession has been my gender role. So there is the being Latina and, all of, and being female and being responsible for all the things at home. And in addition, having a career and wanting to, to grow in that career. I remember early in my career talking to one of my, uh, my CEO and saying, hey, I have to head home. We worked in Soho. I lived in the North Bronx. And he was like, why? And I was like, because at home you have a wife. I am the wife. And that opportunity to talk about that inequity of not having that kind of support and not having that kind of system there to support us as we're moving through it. The other thing that um, is really an item is that I had to make decisions in my career when I was trying to conceive to slow down my career in order to pace it to match up for a work-life balance because I felt that I did not have the opportunity to come to work and say, I need more time. I'm still invested. I'm still interested. I still want to, but I also want to be able to go and do this thing in my personal life. And that choice at the time was the best choice for me, but I'm really looking forward to the evolution that we have now where we, that is no longer a decision that has to be made in every industry that women still feel that they have to make this decision. I'm not going to say that they don't, but that it is not as prevalent and that I'm ensuring that as a leader I am instilling those values in my future leaders um, and ensuring that this is not a you having your personal life and all the things that come with being female is not really a challenge. I will say also that one of the other challenges were um, being Latina. You know, the the bias of, um, you know, I'm a fast talker, slow walker, <laughs> great dancer, but it's the, hey, you need to calm down. You need to speak less, not, not use your hands as much. You need to scale back. Um, and all of that perception, I was very fortunate that I had a, um, I had two managers who really leaned into that for me and, and helped and encouraged me um, and were able to show me how to cultivate the narrative, how to influence change, how leadership can impact what your career can go to. So I think that that the changes that I'm seeing is that we're having these conversations. 20 something years in the industry, we're actually having honest dialogue about this. We're, have, we're having a dialogue about what it is to be a person of color, what it is to be an immigrant, what it is to be female, have different gender roles, have different um, preferences in your personal life and come to work with those and not have to leave those at the door. Um, I will say that I saw In the Heights this weekend. I hope everyone gets a chance to see it. There are things they could have improved upon. But I want to call out one thing. If 20 years ago, I would have been like Nina. I don't know if you saw during the movie, but in the beginning of the movie, she has her hair flattened out and blown out, which is lovely. I also enjoy it. But that would have been required for me to feel that I could show up to a panelist and talk to you. I would have had to modify how I looked in order to fit in. And I can see that now that that is a very visual, very, I would say cosmetic change possibly some may feel, but it is enormously impactful that I can show up with all my curls and be, still be well-respected and received. So I think those are the changes we're
2: seeing, Jose. Thank you, that was really powerful. Yeah, and Cassandra, I see your curls too. They look great. <laughs> Um, you know, let's continue, um, you know, in, ter- in, in terms of gender and women, um, Calandra, right? You gave us some uh, some figures there and showing us the landscape of women. Um, I also, you know, and, and you come from a from a very uh, unique perspective, right, as a, as a female-owned prop tech company. Um, and then I, I read a Forbes article, you know, that said, you know, only 10% of prop tech women are founders, and you talked about the issues with equity. But, you know, tell us a little bit more detail from your real personal experiences in owning a prop tech company, how the landscape, you know, really truly is for women.
6: Yeah, you know, well, you- so thank you, Jose. And, and, uh, and Lourdes, thank you for your comments. Those were much appreciated and really, I think resonated for a lot of us. Um, I think as a female founder, uh, I have gone through a lot of different iterations with our company. I started State Book with a co-founder who was a white male, um, and that was very advantageous in raising capital in the early days of the company. Um, We we raised capital very easily and um, made a mistake, I think, in not raising more because it did come so easily with his network and and his uh, credentials in the industry and um, as, a, as a, I, I bought him out actually in 2017 and pivoted the company to become much more of a data platform and data provider than it was initially. And um, as a female founder, I was able to go out and raise capital on my own. Um, so that was very encouraging. It is definitely a challenge Most of the VCs that you're pitching are men. Um, You saw some of that in that slide that I showed with the um, financial investment community is is only 35, 34 percent. I think it was female. Um, So you're pitching very few fellow females and even a lot of the um, groups, because we are a very serious B2B uh, data platform. um, We saw a lot of the different groups that support women founders of companies are typically not looking at serious B2B data companies. They're looking at, as they put it, one of these groups put it to me, oh, you know, we support women founders, but we're used to seeing things in fashion or for children or for, you know, kittens. And so they weren't used to seeing women in a serious role. Um, not that that's not serious at all. I don't mean to, uh, to belittle fashion or, or things for children, but it, it's a very different category of business when you're trying to raise capital in an area where very few people in general know what you're talking about when you're discussing data. Um, much less, you know, fashion and children are much more relatable to all of us rather than hard data. So, um, we've had a lot of challenges in terms of of being understood by our investors. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, I think that um, in general, in business, people don't um, expect a woman to be leading a company like this. However, in my experience, again, we have really uh, seen some remarkable changes in the industry as time has progressed. And it's been a much more increasingly diverse room that we tend to sit in. And there are a lot of prop tech companies now that have women in senior leadership roles that are uh, promoting women from within, hiring women from without. Um, So as a female founder, I'm very encouraged. I will say there is definitely a long way to go when it comes to race and the racial divide um, and inclusion in PropTech. Um, And generally speaking, I think it is very important for companies and investors to remember that, and this is across the spectrum, not just in PropTech, that diverse companies have been shown to actually be more profitable and likely to achieve long-term growth as an entity and within their industry And in particular, racially diverse executive teams have been shown to provide an advantage of 35 percent higher profits and 33 percent more long term value creation um, over the least racially diverse companies. So those are some important stats, I think, to keep in mind.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And I, and I, I am encouraged, like there's PropTech for Women. There's a lot of things, but you're right. There's so much work to be done. Um, and so I would love to throw out the first poll question, and I'd love to get some participation from everyone on this call. And the first question is a yes or no answer. Uh, do you feel there is a commitment to diversity at your company? Um, and then as you answer that, Tamisha, you're on deck for the next question. I think it would be interesting to even see Um, you know, what you think about the results. Um, And um, in addition, uh, you know, as an experienced recruiter, you know, tell us some of the strategies that organizations are implementing to hire more women and or candidates from diverse backgrounds. I mean, you don't have to give us your secrets, but um, it would be great to know some of those strategies.
5: Certainly. Um, So looking at, thank you so much for sharing the results. So 82% feel that there is a commitment to diversity at their companies and 18% I feel like that is not such the case. So that's great that um, I would say that, you know, there has been a global awakening to the importance of equity, inclusion, and diversity. And, you know, um, I I would say for Newberger, Newberger was on that journey prior to the global awakening because I was hired at the firm in 2019. So they recognize for asset management, particularly it has been an industry that um, where, you know, ethnic diversity as well as gender diversity, we could do a better job. So it's really plain, plain and simple. The leadership team was committed and you know, created the seats and the space. And um, so I, I would say that some strategies. So that was one, companies just being willing to create the, the um, resources to come and dedicate and focus in specifically on moving the needle. So for any business problem, we would address it by putting a team of people around it to attack that problem, right? So equity, inclusion, and diversity is no different. Than putting a team of people around to focus on the challenge, and and there's multiple, there's no secret sauce, Jose. So I would say that there's no um, there's no magic bullet, there's no one solution with um, recruitment and um, and trying to attract um, and retain diverse professionals. But what we do do is try. There are lots of targeted associations as well as like um, there's SEO actually has a real estate program, and I'll tell you that we've Newberger has acquired um, a company called Almanac which is our real estate arm. And we partner with an SEO that pipelines in real estate specific, real estate trained talent um, to come in and work with our investment professionals. So this is, and I will tell you that we've achieved um, ROI success and we're super excited about that partnership there needs to be more of those things, partnerships with, um, you know, there's lots of organizations and as well as, you know, I'd say, you know, to the likes of MLT, Twigo, there's a whole bunch of different for, for asset management specifically for, because we're looking for across the spectrum. So facilities, um, you know, as well as our investment teams down to our operations team to finance. So we're looking across the board. So when we talk about exposure, lots of times it's getting our name out there and letting folks know that we're, we're, we're open for business and we're interested in you. And um, and here are opportunities that could be useful, could be translatable skill sets and, um, and start the conversation. Let's start the conversation, have the dialogue. And I, I like how Craig said it in the beginning, like we have to start somewhere. So starting somewhere is exposure and the conversation. It can even be exploratory. We may not even have the role available now, but we can start to be able to have those intentional discussions and dialogues to create the opportunities and spaces. And ultimately it could take, sometimes it's a courting process. I like to call it, um, it's courting like you're dating, right? So sometimes, you know, before we get to the altar and say, I do, it could be six months, one, you know, one year, it could be a year and a half, but ultimately you started that process. You each, you know, we know you, you know us. And then, you know, ideally if there's not a role immediately, it can materialize later. So it's really being intentional about that. But I'd say with the partnerships and associations and then referrals, one of the biggest things that we use in recruiting, it's um, we LinkedIn. If, if folks are not on LinkedIn, that is a big, big tool. We use it. We're searching against it, we're messaging and outreaching to people, and we're trying to, we're, find people, we're finding folks, women that are a part of women in finance, women in real estate, women in profit, like wherever they are, we're trying to find the pools where they are to introduce and expose them to opportunities that could be of, of interest. So um, I'd say if everyone needs to make sure those LinkedIn profiles are updated, and, um, and it is, it's not six degrees of separation. I'm a firm believer that it's more like two to three. It's maybe not somebody that I know directly, but it's somebody that you know, or somebody that, you know, someone in your network knows. And then, so making that full circle connection is so important in recruiting.
2: Thank you so much. And obviously, you know, some of those strategies uh, that you develop, right, are based on data. And so before we shift over to the educator side, you know, and, you know, when I shift over to Russell, he can also speak about how his company Um, uses data to help out um, organizations and facilities, but um, Calandra, how has your, how has your company helped organizations, just really quickly, like what are some of the strategies that you feel they've developed based on some of the data that you, your company has provided?
6: Yeah, well, you saw the, some of the stats that I put up earlier showed that the uh, number of students graduating with specific degrees is actually kept at the federal level um, from the the Department of Education by race and gender. And so that data can be used by companies who are looking to recruit from uh, a more diverse pool of candidates. And so we've worked with several different companies actually on uh, finding candidates for them. Like one company, we worked with a Fortune 100 company that as a manufacturing company, and they recognized that um, 75% of their engineering team was retiring within the next five years at the time. And they looked at the the team that they had at the time and realized they were largely all white male. So they came to us and said, can you help us identify universities that are graduating African-American or other diverse candidates that are Uh, specializing in these types of engineering. And so we were able to show them where those schools were and how many students were graduating. And using that kind of a data-driven approach is I think very valuable, not just from a recruiting standpoint, but looking at the first step, as as Tamisha was saying, you can start at the beginning and uh, go into those universities. I've seen a best practice in Cleveland where the universities, the, the city realized that they were losing, they had a brain drain of students that were graduating and being educated in the community and then leaving. And so they created a program where f- for the freshman uh, incoming class, they would bring them to the football stadium on basically day one with all of the largest employers in the city and say, if you graduate with these types of degrees, Uh, we will give you internships, we will mentor you, we will hire you when you graduate. And so that was a best practice that's really identifying for the students, here are the opportunities and you will have a job with this figure salary if you specialize in these areas, which I think is a great
2: way to start. Thank you. Um, And Russell, I think you established uh, your company back when PropTech was not even a term. And in, in essence, it's kind of what your company, um you know, is part of the industry as well. Are you but as calling an me old
4: Jose? Uh, <laughs>
2: uh, as an entrepreneur and uh, an educator that you are, um tell us a little bit about DEI, you know, is it embedded uh, within the curriculum? And if not, do you think um, it should be, uh, you know, how is important? How important is it for um, you know, your students to know, you know, how it could be a driving force and why it is important to promote it.
4: Yeah, I, I don't think it's embedded in the curriculum. Uh, I, I think, and Pratt happens to be unique. And so I mentioned before, I, I teach at Pratt. I actually, uh, I've got my undergraduate as well as my master's degree from Pratt. So I am kind of biased uh, with regards to Pratt, but a couple of things is, yeah, it's, it's an art school in New York City. And it's got a huge international student body, so in terms of diversity, I don't think you get much more diverse than than Pratt is. So I think it's kind of built into the culture there, uh, with regards to diversity inclusion. It's just the the school itself, it kind of embodies that. Um, coming at it from, from a slightly different perspective, though, is looking at it as um, you know, I'm, I'm in prop tech. Uh, but I'm a vendor, so I sit on a different side of the fence than a, a, lot of, a lot of people on the panel. But uh, just uh, since we had one of our preliminary calls with this group, what I found amazing was um, the number of companies that we deal with that have reached out just this month, because I guess it's diversity inclusion month. So they had to do the obligatory reach out to all their vendors with uh, a questionnaire just to see, just uh, to make sure that you're... Um, promoting diversity, promoting inclusion. And, but yet I don't see that any other time during the year. Um, very rare does it happen. Or even, you know, you want to talk about awareness. It's like when you're shopping for a car and it, all of a sudden it starts like showing up everywhere. Well, uh, participating in a panel like this, it just made me that much more aware of things. And for instance, the other thing that caught my attention was LinkedIn. I think I'm the only person on LinkedIn that doesn't have a, a rainbow flag background on my logo right now. And if, if I could figure out how to do it, I probably would have done it. But, but I just think it's one of those things where I, I think it's nice to acknowledge it. But I think Craig kind of really made a, a great point at the beginning of this call is it, I, I think that just needs to be a, a little bit more. And it has to be all year round. It's not just one month a year where you, you change your logo and send out a few flyers. It's this is the kind of thing that needs to happen all the time. And I think this is great. Just the the awareness, the education part of it is uh, so, uh, it's a great start. But I think this is also you know for all the participants on here and stuff, the type of thing that you have to take away. And just make sure that you're promoting it all the time, not just that once a year.
2: Right. Yeah. So I heard a, a call to action there.
4: You know, just yeah.
2: don't wait for Pride Month, don't wait for Hispanic Heritage Month, you know, try to embed it throughout the year and promote it. And, you know, you had mentioned um, vendors and I'd like to ask Lourdes, who probably in facilities deals with a plentitude amount of vendors, um, you know, how how are you? Um, working to ensure that there is inclusivity and equity there for those vendors.
0: Well, Russell hit it on the head, right? It isn't just once a year and it isn't just one project. And I think that the biggest change that we've seen, mainly in the last 16 months or so, or some firms started earlier, is really not focusing on just checking a box. So we're gonna go out for a big spend, we're gonna go out for a big construction project and we wanna just check the box. Do we have someone, did we have a diverse vendor? Was it female owned? And then not awarded. That doesn't help, that doesn't help our communities. And so now what we're doing is taking a pause and saying, hey, we need to pick the best vendor for this particular project. Now, the ones we didn't pick, what happened? Was it that our insurance premiums were too, were too hard for them to meet? Then let's talk internally, how can we solve that? Was it that they don't have the experience in the type of projects we have? Can we give them a sub part of a project so that they can start to gain that experience and gain that exposure? What is it their finances? Is, Is there a way then that we can use our influence as a company to help small firms get the financial backing that they need? There needs to be more to that conversation than just checking the box. Are they or are they not, you know, diverse and inclusive? The other thing I'll I'll point out that goes to how we are evolving towards the future is really designing our spaces for the future that we're looking for, not the future, not the present we have. So that means we're designing spaces where it is a given that we're going to have an interfaith room, where we are providing restrooms that in a tech industry that is male-dominated, we are still building the restrooms because I'm building a restroom for 20 years. So I'm building for that population that's coming, and I'm ensuring that women also have a place there, that we're building rooms for mothers so that mothers can return to work and and can feel supported in having their dual parts of their lives. I think that there's a lot of positive movement, but there is a road ahead where we still have a lot to grow, how to figure out how to support our communities and our vendors um, to really be diverse and equitable and included.
2: Thank you. And, uh, you know, we're getting towards the end here. And so I want, you know, just to let the audience know, I put it in the chat, but please feel free to add any questions in here. But one of the themes that I've also heard several people trickle on is mentorship, right? And that makes me think about allyship, and how important, you know, that is. Russell, kind of starting with you, and then we'll go, you know, with Craig and Tamisha, and so forth, you know, how important, I mean, you're an educator. So there's a part of it that's definitely mentorship. You know, how important is that even within your company? Um, and then Craig, of course, you know, you, you tap into what you think, how important you think mentorship and allyship is.
4: I, th- I think the mentorship is critical. Um, within my company, we're not huge. So uh, in terms of just having something structured there, it's really very, very informal, but on the flip side with regards to Pratt, yeah, I've I've worked towards mentoring a number of students over the years, whether it's just career advice, um, any kind of guidance, I'm, I've always made myself available, even if it's just a question. I have some students reach out to me that I, I haven't seen or heard from in 20 years, and all of a sudden it's, hey, uh, you know, can, can I bend your ear for a minute? So I always try to do something like that. But I think I think it is critical. I know at Pratt, they actually, we've had a couple of students try to set up a more formal mentorship program. Um, so that is still kind of working its way out, uh, but it's they actually had something where they were trying to put uh, a little more structure around it so that there would be uh, a conduit for the students to actually start to interact with professionals who could give them a little bit of time and guidance and you know, help, help steer them in the right direction or just answer questions. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. And I think Lords is right. You know, somebody, she actually was fortunate enough to have somebody take them, uh, take her under their wing and provide a little bit of guidance and insight and stuff. And it really goes a long way. So I always try to make sure, you know, I, I had some troubles when I was uh, coming up through the ranks and always try to share that information when I'm talking to the students, hopefully prevent them from having those problems, but also, yeah, you know, help them just uh, get along and point them in the right direction.
2: And I'll, yeah, and I'll be honest, Russell, you've uh, mentored me throughout the years, and so I'm thankful for that. I just have to point
3: that out, uh, Craig. I was going to say, Jose, we, we began this call by you know opining on just how unlikely it is that we would be here, and I and I sus- suspect that the only reason we are is not because we're just brilliant and amazing and awesome, because if that were the case, there'd be more brilliant, amazing people who are out there here it's because someone was either a mentor, a sponsor, or an ally, those three roles. Um, and I think about kind of the flywheel, you got to get in the game, you got to stay in the game, you got to win the game. And then hopefully if you're good enough that maybe you can change it. Um, and to get in the game, you need sponsors. You need someone who's going to like, you know, say, Hey, Jose should be in this role. Jose would be great. You guys don't know Jose, but let me tell you about Jose. Um, to, to stay in the game, you need mentors to Lourdes, let me help you navigate the situation. Let me help you work through this. Um, there are gonna be some haters. There are gonna be some microaggressions. Let me help you work through this. Um, you know, to win the game, um, you, you're you're gonna need some some you know some people who are allied and and there to help you, you know do that. and and ultimately, if you get enough capital, then you should pay, pay it forward and then change the game yourself. right? And so that's the flywheel that if we're doing this right, uh, um, we can slowly you know make a difference and uh, and, and yes, we need allies. They're just not enough of us to do the work and oh, by the way, my nine to five is not changing the world. I want to show up and be an employee and not be you know nine to five an activist. So we need a lot of people to play their role and they may not look like us.
2: Great, thank you. And we do have a few um, a few questions here. Um, and maybe this is a good one for you, Tamisha. Um, any thoughts on companies that are starting to pay um, employee resource group leaders for their contributions? I'm actually part of an employee resource group, and actually, it's actually a lot of work, <laughs> um, but I do it because I love and the passion for diversity. I don't do it for monetary reasons, but that, that's an interesting question.
5: It really is. Um, I would say, um... I do agree, Jen, that um, companies should start think about, thinking about paying, um, you know, ERG leaders because it is—it's like a second job. Um, for sure. So you have your full-time job, which you can't let that slip, and then you're trying to move the needle. And there's a lot required of you from senior leadership as well, too, because senior leadership is looking for you for the inputs, for the intel, for the advice on how they move the needle for the respective ERG. So um, we haven't talked about um, at, you know that currently in terms of compensation, but I do think there should be it should be included in merit bonuses in terms of going over and above and achieving. Um, right, your contribution to the firm. So there should be definitely that should be something that should be able to be put on a year in review and seen as a you know a meaningful um, a meaningful contribution to be compensated for. So more to come on that. We that's one of the we need to do more work in that category for sure. Um, also, I do know the companies are looking at bigger budgets. Right, because before it was trying to pinch from this one to that one and try to put together and you know parcel a budget, but now there's more funding going for to the ERGs to be able to to do more impactful things. So that's that's a good start.
2: Awesome, and um, we're getting you know to the end of uh, of this event, and you know one of the things that I want the audience to ask themselves and to truly. Um, you know, commit to is, is, you know, what is your commitment to DEI in the next year? Um, you know, whether, you know, and I think you have a good roadmap here, based on the panelists that you've heard today, of, you know, commitments that you can make. So I want to thank uh, Cornet, IFMA, our panelists for joining us today, and especially the audience for engaging in this conversation um, and, and listening, and I truly hope you were able to take away some good points and of commitment um, to promote diversity, equity, um, and inclusion. So with that, thank you, everyone. Appreciate everyone uh, joining. Thank, thank you. you. Jose. Thank, you
0: Jose. thank you.
3: Thank you all. Thanks, Jose.